Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. So first off, you guys, uh, you're my neighbors first, I would like to say is your title because um, one of my favorite stories is when we got locked out of our house. <laughs> and so, you know, we have the garage door opener in our cars, but and then you can lock the door to the garage. And for whatever reason, I don't, I must have left out the front door and locked the door to the garage. And we went to a neighbor's, I don't know, it was in the summer or something. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we can't get into our house. We don't have an extra set of keys. So who, who can I call? Who are the people to call? And thank goodness I had you guys. So you come over to the rescue. You happen to be home. And what did you do? You did you you had some Jimmy rig tool or something that you used? No, we basically broke into your garage. <laughs> well, I went back to it was get a window. A, yeah, it was yeah. the window. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, the window. Yep. So yeah. I think we had tried the pry bar to get into the garage, and then that's when we're just like, well, hey, let's try and see if there's an open window because everybody always seems to leave an open window. Yes. And which is two. a good cautionary tale because I didn't even realize that window was still unlocked and it's ground level very easy to get into yeah and we just found that open window and we yeah. were in so you popped the screen off with something yep. so, and it, was that like a police tool you had <laughs> a screwdriver <laughs> <laughs> well Fozzy was there to to greet us so I don't know that anyone else would have tried that that trick hopefully yeah he's all bark and no bite but I see this whole time I thought you had like some uh, crazy tool that you brought over. It was over. just a screwdriver. Oh. And we were going to cut the screen, but I was able to use a screwdriver and just pop the screen out of the track. Got it. Because so many times when we go to burglary calls, that's what you would find the screen just perfectly cut around the edge. And they would just pull the screen back and get in. Oh. So we didn't have to resort to that. But See, that's, that's how you think like a police officer and not like just a idiot who locked herself out of the house as I wouldn't have even thought to check if it was unlocked. But yeah, so you popped it open. Garrison was super excited to be able to crawl through the window and open the front door and save the day. So thank you guys for that. Okay. So you are both canine officers. Mark, you are retired. It's such a fascinating field. I'm sure you could tell us stories for days, but I want to know how it was that you got into it and what the process is like schooling like what was your journey of becoming a canine officer what inspired you to do it and all of that um yeah canine was always one of my when i first started becoming a, or when i first became a police officer canine was on kind of my list of things to do in my career but there's kind of a process to get into it and you have to serve a number of years on the street before you can even apply for special units so basically, you had to be on patrol for five years. I think it's changed now to four years, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a process to go through. At the time I went through it, you basically had to help out the canine unit with the current officers that were in there. So you had to be like a decoy. And, and this is just like a volunteer that you're... Yes. Yep. So it would actually be on... Uh, sometimes when I was on duty... And my supervisor let me do it while I was on duty or else it was just on my own time that I would go in and help with different aspects of the training, hiding for 
uh, the canine officers, and they were able to send them. So I was basically a decoy, take bites, and just kind of learn the ins and outs of the canine unit. Okay, wait. So when you say decoy, you were like somebody that was supposed to be a bad guy? Yes. No way. And, and you just do that? You have to just volunteer to do that? To- at, at that point, yes. And so, I mean, you, you they give you the protective suits or the protective sleeves to do this. And everything's pretty controlled. Um, but incidents still do happen. You still will get bit. Um, happened a couple get, times. You got bit? Uh, yeah, I've been to, I don't want to say how many times I've been to the emergency room. But, yeah, I've been bit a number of times. But that's just part of being canine. You're, you are going to get bit. That is part of it. So I had got into it and just to get my, my name known with the canine officers. And then, then there was a process. So when a, a position came open, you had to submit a letter of interest uh, with a resume. And then there was a oral interview that you had to go through with the current canine officers and a sergeant and uh, another supervisor. And... And then you were ranked. So it was basically like a civil service ranking. So you would do your interview, practical test, seeing how you were able to do with the dog. And the decoy aspect came into play, being that you knew how to do that. And then you would be ranked. And then they would take you based on that ranking. So if there was only one position and you were number eight on the list, you pretty much got passed over because you just... Did, it wasn't going to happen. So they would hold that list for two years. Oh, I was going to say, if if you get ranked at like eight, is your chance of becoming a canine officer like slim to none? Mm-hmm. Okay. So was, I, I was on four different four different um, lists for that. And the fourth time uh, is when I finally got in to the unit. Wow. Yep. So it's pretty difficult to penetrate. Yes. It's... Um, and it's just it's just it's a it's a coveted position and it's very there's a lot that goes into the training and there's a lot of responsibility even when you're not at work. Like I mean that dog is pretty much your responsibility twenty four seven. So there's a lot that goes into that. And Beck can talk about her process too with uh the the same the eligibility list yeah. of getting into canine. And so like I said, it's 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 a big commitment. Yeah. So once you become, well, I, I suppose we can let you share your story first. And then I want to know about when you get your canine and what that process is too. So yeah, Becky, why don't you share about how you got into it? Well, it's mine was pretty much the same, except I didn't do a lot of decoying prior. But since Mark was already in the unit, I would attend a lot of the canine trials, their certification. So I'd be supportive for him and all the other guys that were going through the trial at the time. So I had the interview process as well, and then a practical, and then you got ranked. So I did that probably about 10 years ago. There's quite a few people that put in for it, and I didn't get it that time. And then when I knew Mark was on his way to retirement and leaving, they had opened up a couple positions. So I put in for it. I just wanted to get on the list and I didn't get it the first time around. And then the second time around, I got it prior to the two years expiring. That still seems fast for most people like that you guys got in. I mean, how long do people typically attempt to get uh, this coveted spot? You know, it just goes, I mean, some people have put in for it after their five years or they were eligible to do it and they got in right away. 
other it just it's just it all goes to kind of how you interview how you place how they you know the, the practical part of it was you know you know how do you correct a dog how do you take a bite how you know just if you're coachable is the biggest thing is if you're coachable and so a lot of it's it just like with mine it just i my time frame just didn't work out so like i said it basically took me eight years to get in there and then beck i think well like i said you tried one time a long time ago and then just kind of pushed it aside and when i got in i was i'd basically been on the street i think 10 years uh, i think maybe a little longer than you know that. so 10 or 12 years i'd been on the street uh, basically a 911 responder Okay, you did yep. that for uh, over a decade? Uh, on the street. So I did had different aspects of being on the street. I was in a couple different units, SOD Patrol, which is a special operations division at the time, which was basically a SWAT function. And we were we would go out on patrol in the high crime areas, uh, directed patrol wherever they needed us in the city. So I did that for a number of years. I was on the community response team for a few years, and then I was uh, back answering 911 calls. So basically, you were a, a district squad answering 911 calls. So I did that was a total of 12 years that I had done that before I went to K-9. So how old were the kids when you were out on working on the street? And, and what were your hours like at that time? Well, my first marriage, they were my kids were small. And then when um, uh, I'd gone through the divorce process, and then Beck and I <laughs> became <laughs> became a thing and then got married. So, so I think Josh and Bella were fairly young when I was... Yes. In canine. Probably five and six or six and seven, something yeah. like that. So they'd been um, around dogs basically all their life, you know, yeah. from a young age. Yeah. You've got to have some crazy things from what happened in the field. Did oh, you- there's, all, there's all kinds of crazy. I mean, and everybody has crazy stories. There's, yeah. there's no doubt about it. But the thing with canine is you're kind of brought into line of danger quicker because of your function with, with the canine. So, like, on your vehicle chases, they want you to be up front. So, they're always calling. So, there's always that. You're, like, right in the front of things. What kind of situation requires the canine? Well, I mean, the, the there's a lot of aspects of canine. And there's the apprehension part that everybody thinks of, that that's, they're going to send their dog to apprehend somebody. Okay. That is at the point where it's a, a dangerous felon type crime, level, felony level crime, which is top level crime um which at the time were car chases somebody with a gun that's being chased um but like i said that's everybody always associates canine with apprehending they are a great locating tool and that's what we basically use them for as a locating tool so we can use them for a lot of different aspects i mean it's and it's you know from tracking building searches uh, article searches if somebody runs and they drop something. So our dogs have a lot of capabilities. It's not just that apprehension function. And that's why we, all of our dogs are dual purpose. So there is that apprehension function that they are trained for. Um, they're trained in tracking, building searches, uh, article searches. And then they have a secondary function, which is either narcotic detection or explosive detection. And Back when I first came on, uh, I think we had maybe 17 canines, and 15 of those canines were narcotics dogs, and we had two explosive dogs. Now the tables have turned. Now we have, I keep saying we still, I'm retired, but they have now I think 10 explosive dogs and two 
narcotics dogs. So you can see the flip in and is the that, way things are. Okay, that's because the demand for explosive... Ever since 9-11. Got it. Okay. And so now the tables have turned, and with the terroristic threats and things like that, like I said, canines have many... They, they do a multitude of, of functions, and they are basically invaluable to any police department. And like I said, we do... Uh, ours are you know, with the explosive searches. You know, it's for all the special events, be it marathon... Parades. Uh, we do the uh, all the special little Vikings games, Timberwolf games, and uh, I believe we're back into the Twins uh, stadium. So a lot of that, a lot of that stuff is done behind the scenes before the fans actually get there. Oh, so and, every time there's one of those big events, there's probably a, yeah. a canine who's already. So like on on a, a good, I don't want to use the term on any given Sunday, but on a Sunday football game, they have six canines, explosive canines. And then we have a bomb unit also that assist us in searching those venues. So we all do all that prior to the game starting. Wow. Has there ever been something that you have confiscated in your time in those kinds of events? There's been incidents, but it's never been an actual device. There's been suspicious packages, which we are called to. Uh, our, typically, our bomb unit is the one that goes up and searches those and then the canine function on that is to do a secondary search like we've had transit buses that someone says there's a bomb on this bus so then that bus is basically stopped in its tracks an area is cleared out and we will the canine will be the secondary circle per se of security and the bomb techs are the ones that will actually go onto that bus and look for that package. And does that usually happen if there's a suspicious package left behind? So well, that's really thorough. Like on the on the football games, you get a lot of that. You know, some of you, you know, because I mean, now that everybody's into this, see something, say something. You know, I mean, when we had the um, Super Bowl here, uh, we had 150 canine teams, and now you look back at ah, uh, we only have at that time I think we had 16 dogs. So now we had to go nationwide. And there's a level of security that uh, it's called a SEER, I believe, SEER level. And then that's the federal government dictates what the threat level is. And then they call in all their resources from across the country. So we had 150 canine teams. And then we had canine teams from TSA, from the Border Patrol, U.S. Coast Guard uh, that came and were here. And we had to work with all these other agencies and set up, you know, because, I mean, there was a multitude of events during the Super Bowl. You know, all the special things they had on Nicollet Mall, and there was access points, and you can only come in at this point. And so we had to coordinate that with all these outside agencies, and the uh, FBI, ATF were also involved in that. So it was a big, huge event to put on. I've heard the Super Bowl is one of the most dangerous things out of like the year because of trafficking. Is that accurate? Yes. That, in addition to the canine, then we had a whole nother unit that was, you know, because you've got all these execs and business people and a lot of things go on that the seat of your side of life that attract these events and that things come in to the cities for that. 
purpose. Wow. So were there, did you say there were separate units just focused on that or is that there were? Yep. And I believe if correct me, we did have a human trafficking unit or we still do. There was, there was a human trafficking in our department and then there was other people from outside agencies that came in and um, assisted with that. And they hit that pretty yep. hard. So a lot of sting operations that they would set up, you know, monitoring, um, websites and things like that and going after that type of, you know, and then we even, uh, the, uh, ticket scalping, they had uh, a special unit that just dealt with that. Oh, sure. You know, counterfeit, counterfeit tickets that yeah. were being sold. And yeah, I can't imagine the amount of, uh, the influx of people that came just in the police force during that time, not to mention for the event itself. So I think what a lot of people think of when they think of canine unit is they think of German shepherds, but I have learned that that's not what you have, right? So will you talk about the breed and well, there's there is yes, I mean the German shepherds are your that's what everybody when they associate canine they think of the German shepherds. That was a large part of our unit at the time, but we've had bloodhounds and we've had single purpose. So our dogs are dual purpose: apprehension, tracking building searches, and they're either narcotic or explosive. There are single-purpose dogs, which we had one of those, which is just an ex a complete single-purpose explosive dog. It was a golden lab, and it was um, supported by the ATF. So the ATF had paid for the dog, and then they sent an officer to Quantico for three months to train that dog and then come back. And then we've also had bloodhounds. As things progress, things change Breeds develop, and then they came the belted Malinois. Yes, that's it. What's that? That's it. That's the name I was yeah, thinking Yeah, belted of. Malinois. Okay. They call them Mal for short, M-A-L. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and they're really used by the military just because of their high drive and their sustainability to work longer periods of time in basically adverse conditions. So basically is what they did is they took a – I'm going to – don't – quote me on this, but I have to do my research, but I think they took a, they took a, uh, I don't know if it was a Dutch shepherd and a Belgian shepherd and mixed it and came up with a Belgian Malinois. I'd have to go back to the lineage of actually how, but basically they created a super athlete is what they did for a working dog. And then that's when they came up with the, the Mals and they're just very high drive, very, they're a working dog and they just, that's, they love to please. And so my first canine was a German Shepherd, all black German Shepherd, Maverick. And then my second one was a Belgian Malinois. Now they've got into mixing a German Shepherd and a Belgian Malinois. And now we have a Belgian Mal mix with a Shepherd. And that's what Beck has. Beck has a Shepherd and a Mal mix. Again, it's another super athlete. So you have the best of both worlds. So you have a because the Belgian Malinois, I can explain it to you. And if there's a person on one side of a fence and they need to get to that person, they will go through that fence instead of trying to find a way around where a shepherd will use its brain and try to figure out a way to, if he can't get into that fence, he'll find a way around. He'll look for a different opening where Mal will just keep trying to run through that fence. Because I just won't use, they're just that, they're just, they're, I mean, I think they put it there that they're the smartest, dumbest dog. Yeah. 
and the shepherds are bigger too, right? Um, not yes. Yeah. Typically they okay. are. So you got a little more brawn and a little more brain. Yep. Okay. You know, but my, my, uh, Mal Blaze, he was only 56 pounds and nobody wanted a decoy for him because of his speed and the way that he would launch and take you down. Wow. So they were afraid of the... Well, they, I, I don't want to say that they, they didn't want to get in because it would knock you on your ass and people didn't want to get injured. So there was only one guy in our unit uh, that ended up taking his his bites when we would do the certifications for the USPCA because he was just a little Tasmanian yeah. devil. <laughs> <It was> just... <laughs> He's sweet. <laughs> he is very sweet. He is a lover. And so, so that's the thing about... I want to ask too because I've... I know Blaze, and he is—he will come right up to you and rub all over you. Um, is that distinct to him, or what are most police dog, uh, most canines like temperament when they're around people and they're off duty? And that all goes to socialization. I mean, that we want a friendly dog that you can take out in public because there are times when we are doing special events that you are out in public with your dog, so you don't want this thing that you know that's constantly trying to go after people or no manners, but like I said, it all goes back into our training. So we want a friendly dog because we do a lot of school events. Schools will call us um, for a demo where we bring the dogs into the school, special events, parades, recruiting efforts, uh, you know, so they're, they're, they need to be around people. So they are friendly and they know when to turn it on when they need to work. Blaze was an exception to the rule. He was just, <laughs> he just loved everybody. What is your dog's name? Brooks. Brooks. Okay. And Brooks is still kind of a puppy or how old? Um, he's a little over two oh, years old. Okay. He has a lot of energy. He has a lot of the mile drive. How long are they trained before they come home with you? So when I received my dog, he pretty much was not trained in anything. So it was almost like bringing home a wild animal, if I'm being Is honest. Is that normal? I mean, don't they usually go through training before they come to you? No. Oh. No. So so what he had exposure to, say, like the Kong, he was exposed to, I'm going to hide the Kong, go find it. Um, but it was very minimal. Like he didn't know how to sit. He didn't know how to heal. He didn't know how to come to me. Nothing like that. It's... It was very interesting. Yeah. So, and are you doing this training mostly at home? Or are you doing this at, is this your all, all day work kind of task when you first get your canine? So our, our training, initial training is 12 weeks. So it's basically four days a week, nine to 10 hours a day. And you're training the whole time with your dog. You may or may not get a lunch break. Um, so the things that Mark had talked about, so, um, we're training with articles. So basically throwing maybe a piece of leather, a screwdriver, an unloaded handgun out in the grass. And I need to teach my dog to go find it and not only find it, but down in front of it and not touch it. So that was a big component of our training. Another big component was the obedience. So the healing, the sit, stand, down, and then the bite work, of course, um, that was a very large component. And that is not as easy as just sending your dog, go get that guy. So it's all baby steps. And then you build on all those blocks of training 
And then we also had the explosives training. Um, that was a big component. And then tracking. Instinctively, the dogs are going to use their noses, especially the shepherds. So I was very lucky to get a shepherd Malmix because I got that drive. And I also got a little bit of the smarts. But teaching your dog to track for a toy or for someone is not as easy as you think. It's not like you just track and then they're like, oh, okay, she wants me to go find a person. It's you have to really build on all that. And, you know, there's a lot of peaks and valleys with everything. There's a lot of very physical, probably the most physical thing I've done in my career, aside from being on the mounted unit, that academy was very physical as well. But there's also a lot of, you know, mental toughness and going through that 12 weeks. And then after the 12 weeks, you know, you have to test out um, with the explosives and the apprehension portion of it, but it's ongoing training. So I will train anywhere from four to eight hours a week with him when I'm working. I try and keep it when I'm working because I want him to have that downtime at home. But I also have a certain expectation with him for manners and obedience when he's at home as well. But I like, I, you want to associate work when you're at work, just kind of like a human. And when you're at home, you kind of want that downtime because he needs that time to rest too. That's so sweet. And are they relegated to a particular area of the house when they're at home? So my dog has his own place in the garage. He's got a big five by eight kennel um, with cattle mats on the on the bottom. So we have pet dogs at home and I don't like to mix them. They might get along, they might not. But a, a lot of it is I'm the leader of the pack and I'm going to dominate you until you figure that out. So I don't think that's something that's necessary right now for them to get along or play. It's He's a work dog. He's very loved. Um, he's, he's fairly friendly, but it's kind of a process to figure that out with him. My main goal is I don't want him to lash out or bite other cops. So when I'm on duty, I like to introduce slowly. Maybe one cop will come stand by me. Another cop will come stand by me. And he has to know that that's okay. Because when I go in and search a building, um, I need cops on either side of me for my cover. So I need him to know, hey, that's not okay to, to bite or to lash out on another cop. I need you to be okay with them standing by me. And knock on wood, um, my experience with that has been really good with him. Well, it's interesting because I've just always thought like instinctually canines know like who the cops are and who the bad guys are. But I suppose that has to be trained, especially yes. when they're protective of you. And if somebody comes from the side or that they're, you know. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. And like Beck mentioned that she's the leader of the pack and that goes with me also. She's the leader of yeah. the pack. I know how Brooks knows his yeah. place. I know my place That's too. Good you so know I don't, your place, I don't mess with that. Yep. Yeah, I wouldn't. Sometimes you have to train husbands too. <laughs> well, yes, men need to be. So yeah, there's too. a lot of training that is involved with with the canines, and like I said, it's it's not. Um, I'm not going to say that there are people that think that you get you walk in and you get this trained dog in a squad car and here you go. It's it's not. Are there trained canines out there? When departments get them, absolutely, there are, but you're going to pay for that. Um, where we get our, our dogs green. And like I said, they basically have, you know, some, and, and they're getting them anywhere from 12 months to 18 months old. 
so they do have a little bit of something, you know, like maybe introduction into um, searching, and that, but that you need to see where their search drive is, their prey drive is. And so they've been introduced to a few things, but we do everything from ground up, uh, you know, like I said, and it's, it's a progression. It's, you know, that, that first, the, your very first week was basically just trying to get the dog to walk next to you. And at the end of the 12 weeks, he's walking next to you without a leash, you know, so it's, it's a progression. And during that, like I said, there's, there's peaks and valleys or ups and downs. And like I said, this is going into these dogs four days a week, 10 hours a day. So when they get home, that's all they need is rest. They don't need to be running around the house, interacting with the kids, you know, so that first initial 12 weeks is, is very strenuous on the dog and the handler. And like I said, it's, it's a big, it's a mental and physical. Right. Demanding. Cause you don't get to rest when you come home, you're parenting, you have, you know, well, I was, I was fortunate. I mean, what the department is paying for, he says, we don't get them for free. The department pays for them, but, um, you're paying for the lineage, like, you know, the reputable breeder that you're getting them from. Like these, this dog, my dog was bred to be a working dog. My dog was bred to be a military or police dog. That's what I was going to ask. Um, where did you, where did you get uh, Brooks from and where do you typically get canines from? So it, that part is actually very interesting. Most of the dogs are bred overseas. That's what I heard. So my dog comes from Hungary. Okay. And so then a broker goes over to this breeder and picks out, say, maybe 10 to 20 dogs and brings them back. And this particular person was in Florida. And so the military gets the first pick. This is the dog I want because of these reasons. And so our trainer will go down and pick dogs knowing, typically knowing, hey, these are the two handlers that are going to be receiving this dog. So he'll kind of take that into account, like maybe our personalities, our skill set, our strengths. And then from there, he'll watch these dogs say, try and find a Kong or just he'll look for certain things in the dog and say, yep, that dog. And yes, that dog. And then he brings it back and then we get them. And like I said, we, the first night, like, I'm just going to take him off the leash and let him run around the garage and see what happens. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> okay then. <laughs> um, wild, Very wild. But part of that process of, training a dog and then seeing where they're at after that 12 weeks. So I'll have had him a year at the end of February. So just seeing that progression, when you do put the work in, how rewarding it is. I mean, it, it's a difficult journey, um, but how rewarding it is at the end, just to see, like, you know, when I take him out on a call, he's all in, you know, hey, there's a burglar inside that house. Let's go find him. He is 110% in. So that's really rewarding, and it's pretty cool to see on the other end, too, just how committed he is to his work. Right. When you were talking about, you were, I think you said the mounted unit. Is that when you're talking about uh, when you were on a horse? Is that the horse patrol? Yeah. Yes. I did that part time. So, uh, in addition to my. Well, I'm curious about that because um, (laughs) I don't know how many places have. Horse patrol, but it must be uh, like bigger. None in Minnesota, where Minneapolis. That's is the only one. I was going to say it must yeah. be bigger cities because it was nothing I ever saw. It used up. to be. I mean, there was several departments: St. Paul, um, U of M, Duluth, and Minneapolis. And I'm not sure if there was any other ones. 
So there's a lot of posses. Yeah. So you'll see a lot of volunteers, especially like sheriff's units that have them, but those are volunteers. So the only working police mounted unit in Minnesota right now Minneapolis. is Minneapolis. They're very popular down south because obviously they can ride a lot, or right? East. Just because yeah. of the weather. Right. Um, New York, Chicago has them, Nashville. But yes, Minneapolis is the only one in Minnesota. So what are they typically, I mean, I there's some like clear benefits in my head of what it would mean to be uh, using a horse while on duty, but what are they used for? Why Minneapolis? And what are they, what's a benefit when you're on the horse? Because to me, I, well, <laughs> let's just say I've ridden a horse uh, a handful of times on like excursions, outings, whatever. And you have to, like they sense my fear because I'm afraid of heights. So just being that high up, like, a, so I've been tried to be bucked off before. I've had like some kind of weird experiences with horses and I love them, but I'm also just afraid to be up that high and I feel a little out of control. So obviously you're, you know, it's people who are comfortable being up there. They have a relationship with the horse, much like with the dog, I'm sure. But um, there also seems to be a bit more vulnerability too when you're on a horse. So what is, in what kind of circumstances do they use it and what are the pros to it? Um, well, they're used for a variety of function and in my opinion, underutilized. One of the biggest things is when they first introduced the mounted unit, I think it was 19, I could be off. I want to say 1997, but once the emergence of all the downtown crowd and the bar scenes used to get pretty out of control. So they were used a lot for crowd control. You know, when the 1 a.m. at the time, bar clothes was on and people were not moving off the sidewalks, we just basically form a line and just start walking slowly and with our horses and giving commands Okay, yep. to leave. Um, it's a huge advantage because, yes, you are a pie, but you can see so much. So they were used a lot initially in the downtown bar scene. It's become a huge community outreach because, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk to you if you're in your squad car, but if you're on a horse, it's like something that you don't see every day and it's kind of cool and they want to pet your horse. They want to be around you. They want to ask all kinds of questions, which is great. Um, we've rode our horses in parades before. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times we would just put the horses in the trailer, saddle up and go ride around the neighborhood and just kind of make those connections. A lot of times, um, kids really like it and all the times the elderly we would use them in the open houses so each precinct would have an open house every year we just trailer up the horses and people could come and ask questions about whatever they wanted to ask about come and pet the horses yeah i suppose there's such a different stigma with a police officer being on a horse than in a police car you know i mean just like the the nerves that it causes people like they're doing something wrong if a police car approaches you know well with a horse too you can get a lot of places that you can't with a squad car oh sure especially in the downtown area um it was very helpful for that um we've when i was on the unit we assisted with a lot of different shootings um we had one in a particular where there's probably about seven people shot and the paramedics could not get to the victim so we were able to open up the crowd and create a safe barrier where they could get to the victim and put that person on the stretcher. And we would walk alongside the stretcher and 
make sure that they could get them into the ambulance. We've done we've done that a lot. Um, we've done a lot of different big events, like the RNC, and then when Trump was here, when they had all those different um, goings on with that. So a lot of the larger scale events. Yeah, a lot of crowd control, I can yes. see. Yes, yeah. a lot of crowd control. And I mean, the big difference between like a horse and a dog is a dog typically wants to please you. A horse typically does not. <laughs> they don't really care. Oh, interesting. Um, so that trying to get like a 1,200 to 2,000 pound animal to do what you want them to do is a little more difficult at times than getting a dog to do what you've trained them to do. But it goes back to a, a team again, you know, and yes. we couldn't do what we do in canine without the help of everybody else, you know, because we're out there with our dog and we're doing things when we need to watch that dog. So we couldn't do our functions if it wasn't for the street cops and the support that we have on the street. And the same thing with mounted, you had your ground patrol ground support. ground support you know so you it's it team everything is a team i mean it, you we couldn't we couldn't be as successful as we are in K9 or in the mounted unit without the street cops because that's where we need our help you know i mean cuz when we're going into searching a building we're watching that dog watching he what he's picking up on watching his indications so that's why i said we get pulled into danger more so than anybody else but we need to rely on our cover officers that are with us and that's why it comes back to it's a big team you know and we wouldn't go we wouldn't we don't go into a building unless we have cover officers so that's why we need that support and bridging those gaps sometimes is is real difficult um but you just need to work together and it's you know like i said and you talk about the anxiety on a horse they can feel that a dog can sense the same thing and that's why um, after being retired now i train with soldier six which is a nonprofit um, that pairs up rescue dogs with veterans and first responders with ptsd anxiety and a multitude of other issues and we train them to be service dogs but that's one of the biggest thing that it, i can stress to anybody is that what you're feeling will go right down that leash and that's a lot of time that mental toughness that Beck talks about or that mental aspect of the dog training. It, whatever she was feeling that morning going into work, it resulted in what happened with that dog during that training time. And that's why you've got it. It is, it is a, a mental game. It is tough. And being able to overcome that and the, the peaks and the valleys. And one day you have a great day and this is the, the world is the best. Your dog is the best. And the next day you come out and it, the wheels just fell off the wagon and you're sitting there with a leash in your hand saying, where did he go? He just, he just ran off. Now I have his leash, but I, he can't right. come back to me. <laughs> and it happens. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. it happens several times. And, but when it happens to you, it's the worst day on earth. But like I said, everything is a team. Everything is a family. And that the cop mentality of to trying to get you through these things, that's you need to rely on everybody. You know, um, Brooks is relying on Beck. Beck is relying on Brooks. Beck has to rely on her partners that are coming to assist her and cover her back 
while they're going into a building to look for somebody or on a track, you know. So it, it, there's a lot of functions that, you know, I mean, it's it's a coveted position. But like I said, we wouldn't be able to do what we do without the ground cops there watching our back. And that I have two things that I was thinking about as you were talking about that. The first being um, because they can feel so much, you know, you say it goes through the leech and dogs are so perceptive of us. That's got to be tough in training, but when you're out on the field, if you're sensing danger, that's got to be a good thing, right? Because their instincts kind of kick in. But they will pull you into that danger because they want to get to what they're looking for. So they will pull you because the dog can't decipher this is bad or this is good. He's just going. He's He was trained to find the person, and he's going to pull you into danger. And that's and you're just holding on to that leash. You just can't let go and say, "Go to it, buddy. I'll be here when you get back." No, you're going with him. So that's what the most you know. Like I said, canine is probably one of the most dangerous spots in the police department because they will pull you into danger, and that's why you need to rely on your cover officers that are going with you. And sometimes we have to direct them. You know, I need you to hear. You know, watch that side. So we got to be kind of a coach and. Uh, a referee and all at the same time. That was the other thing I was going to, when you're talking about, you know, different units, I think one of the stereotypes of like uh, dramatic TV shows is that uh, everybody is kind of like in their own unit and there's kind of like this, um, (laughs) you know, oh, you're part of that unit. This is my unit and your people are territorial. And there's like, um, I don't want to say animosity, but kind of like tensions between is that accurate? <laughs> Again, it's made for TV. Um, there is some of that that does go on. I, I won't deny it, but I kind of use it to my, I mean. Well, some of those TV shows are just <laughs> so far from reality. Like you'll have some special unit that is after this crazy murder suspect who's like involved in some kind of drug ring and they get three shootings in a day and then it's like, oh, no, nope, you're good. Next half hour, you're doing something else. I'm like, that's not a reality <laughs> at all. Like, that's not how it works. And they they very rarely will show any kind of street cops working where I think people have a very off perception, you know, and having worked the street for the majority of my career, probably, what, 22 years before I went to K-9? People have no idea. TV well, I mean, shows. It does happen. Just... I mean, they're like, oh, you're in K-9. Or, but you just have to, like, you just have to turn it around. It's just like it's the spot is open to anybody. Yeah. If you want it, and you're saying, "Oh, he's in canine because he doesn't answer calls," he's in canine. You can put in for that spot too, you know. And it's just like it's it's a lot of hard there work. There is a little bit of politicalness yeah. that goes along with any kind of special yeah. unit. That's there's no denying that. And sure, as with yes, any field. there are. It's that's that's life though. So that's no big surprise. Use it to your advantage. You know, it's. But I think there's a lot of, and having been in K9, there's a lot of teamwork that goes on. And there are phenomenal cops that we have in the department. And there's certain precincts I go to where I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys, thank you so much. You know, setting up a perimeter around a house, just making things easier for me. And a lot of times I'll go and I'll be like, oh, I know that cop. Yeah, will you come with me? I mean, it's, you kind of earn your reputation. 
But yeah, there's plenty of units that are out there doing things that, and plenty of other agencies that we assist as well within the city. So I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm super happy to be in K9. And if someone's in some other unit, good for you. Awesome. If you need help with something, I'll help. Like I said, and the, the K9 unit that, that we were in or that I was in, but you're currently in, it's just everybody wants to see everybody succeed. There's not one person that's out for themselves. I mean, like I said, it's all Tim. And, and like I said, if, if one succeeds, they all succeed. Like Minneapolis, uh, like I said, we have to get our dogs certified every year by the United States Police Canine Association for them to be on the street. So it's called Patrol Dog One. And they have a three-day event every year in the region that we belong to, which we're in Region 12, and that's typically Western Metro and some outside. But so they have a this three-day certification that goes on every year that you have to pass so that your dog can be on the street. So like I said, if 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 and and we've always done very well as a department, Minneapolis. So when we come walking in, we look really well. And some people are like, oh, here comes Minneapolis. <laughs> but that's but we do really well, you know, because we do good at certification. Like I said, some of this stuff is just trial dogs, but we also get the the street calls that we are able to use our dog on. Well, plus so, we train weekly. So we get a lot of benefit. You know, like Unit I said, training. our dogs are well-versed. They're great street dogs and they're great trial dogs. You know, so we have gone. So if you certify regionally, then if you have a certain score, you can go to the nationals. And we've sent, I think, three or four years in a row, we sent a team of um, five officers and, and five of their dogs down to the nationals um, and competed and done very well in it and they always look at the northern minnesota as um, one of the great training areas for canines northern minnesota like I mean, minnesota as a, as a yeah got as, it. A, okay. as a state yeah you know, that, okay. everything that comes from minnesota we all we just do real well in the national events oh that's cool and okay so I would be remiss not to ask you guys some of your crazy stories from uh, <laughs> being in the field, uh, working with canines. I mean, you said you were a 911 operator. I'm sure you could write a book alone on that. 911 responder. Yep. And that's, uh, that's what Beck was. So she did 22 years on the street. I did 12 before going to canine. A lot of the crazy stories that people like to hear are also traumatic events for us. So, like I said, I had over 25 critical incidents that has caused PTSD, um, anxiety, depression, the whole gamut. So, the cool stories are ones that cause can cause a lot of trauma, too. I'm really glad you said that. And I think it's something that, yeah, the things that are sensationalized are things that are difficult. And I, I've, I know this from working with authors who've written memoirs and, you know, they're, they're sharing traumas and they're, uh, they're writing things that might be uh, salacious, you know, to some people. And for them, when they talk about it, this is like, well, this is my story. You know, this is yep. this. I lived it. So, I mean, everybody likes to hear the cool police chases and the canine stories. And uh, but like I said, it, 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 but it's 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 police work and, and police work has never been designed to be pretty. And there's some pretty horrific things. But like I said, the, 
but generally speaking, people want to hear the, the cool stories, you know. Right. And how how do you navigate that? Is there any required therapy or things that police officers go through? Is it just offered, you know, any kind of post traumatic things that they'll put you through? There used to be. It's a hot topic right now because with the recent events um, has caused a lot of police officers nationwide to leave their field because there is not that mental health support. And there should be. I know a lot of departments are trying to work towards that, but it's just not there yet. And I know early on in, in my career, they would have critical incident debriefings where the officers involved in that incident would go in front of um, a therapist or a psychologist and it would it would be debriefed and said, okay, this is what happened. These are what to look for, you know, signs, you know, the sleeplessness, the drinking, uh, you know. The thing that's, you know, like I said, uh, you talk about the, the cool stories, but the cool story, I mean, like I said, police have the highest divorce rate. They have the highest alcohol rate and it's not, a pretty career and that's why there I think there's so much hard times right now of people getting into it and there needs to be a preventive program or maybe a college course that you can go because the I go to counseling two days a week three hours for a week to try to get through what I've been through and deal with the things I've dealt with but I think that should be like a prerequisite before like one of your college courses of going into this type of behavioral training or critical incident uh this is what this is what's going to happen to you um and then it goes on the flip side of sort of what it does in your home life and what beck has had to overcome or help me with with my issues you know and again it's a team thing you know she's helped me help myself but she needs help too at times and so it's it, it's it's needs to be dealt with i don't know how it's going to be dealt with but like, is there not there's not funding for it so are you are you pay out of pocket for i pay out of pocket for mine right now yep you know but i swear by it because i've i've gone through a few and the ones i've i'm dealing with now are are great they know how to help and back at, you know, like you need to this, you know, like I said, mental health is a big part of where we're at and where we've been to get through police work. And a lot of, like I said, a lot of people want to hear the cool stories, but those cool stories are what caused where we're at right now. And like I said, and a lot of people have left that profession just because they can't come and do that job. And that's a real hard slap in the face when someone says you cannot be a police officer anymore. And that is, that in itself was traumatic. Now I got somebody telling me I can't do this job anymore. And it's happening to police officers because they are in the midst of PTSD. Yeah, it's happening to any any first responder. You know, it's becoming more prevalent. It's it's in the military. You know, we all have these traumatic deals, and it 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 is can be debilitating. Um, and if you don't deal with it, I mean, that's why. There's a high suicide rate in first responders because of that. The two of you both being police officers, I would 
think that it would help a lot of just the understanding of where the other person's coming from, but it could Absolutely. make a lot of conflict too in different ways, but it, it's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, but to be in your shoes and to see what you see and to go through what you go through, um, there's no articulating that to somebody else who hasn't walked the walk. So there's at least that I would think. So I'm going to be really reserved what I say about the department and their providing of mental health services. Um, I was part of the peer counseling team for a couple years, and a lot of us just kind of do that on our own, check in with other cops that uh, may or may not have had a traumatic experience or went to a traumatic call, um, make sure they're okay. My former partner was amazing in helping people these last few years that were having a tough time or on the verge of suicide, just a plethora of things. Um, he has left the department and since then, it seems like the push towards the assistance with mental health has not been as strong as it was when he was there. I will say that. Um, for a major department or any department not to provide mental health services for their officers or first responders is, to me, just absolutely ludicrous. Um, we do have where we get 12 free sessions through the department, but, you know, some people might burn through those 12 sessions in less than a month. You know, and it depends on the person. It depends on what their filter was in life. It depends on what they did prior to the department. I mean, some people handle things, but differently. But you have to have some type of mental health foundation for any first responder. And I think if you equip them prior to them even going on the job with certain tools and a certain just knowledge knowledge and having them be in a group session with mental health professionals, it's going to equip them to better handle things when it when they come up. Um, a lot of first responders are going to react differently to all kinds of different calls. Something that affects me greatly is maybe not going to affect the person standing right next to me watching the same thing. Right. And I can imagine um, the amount of people who have trauma, their own personal trauma that has been buried and doesn't resurface until they are on the field. And that can debilitate and freeze a person. I can't imagine. Uh like I, I'm very lucky. I came from, my parents are still married. They've been married 54, 55 years. Um, I have three brothers who are all Marines, one of, one of which is in law enforcement. So I have a very good support system where, say, someone else, maybe even not my partner, but say I'm working with someone that came from a broken family who really wasn't loved or just doesn't have a good support system at home or anywhere they're going to struggle more with processing and trying to get through a traumatic event probably a little more than myself because I do have that strong support system. So it's it's people on the department like that um, that I personally try and help. And that's just I mean, something, anybody. this peer counseling is just something that you guys have kind of started on your own, just. So my former partner started it and it was amazing training and it helped me get through a lot of my own personal things. And it also helped me 
um, give me some knowledge and techniques to help Mark and other people on my shift. So we collaborated with other departments as well who have other mental health professionals that came in and helped us. Um, I went through a two-day like suicide training class, like prevention. Um, we also had a plethora of mental health professionals that came in and really educated us and just really helped us figure out how to help other people and help ourselves. So we did, we did monthly training and, you know, we also did like the different um, critical incident debriefs that Mark talked about. We would do those as well. But that has since kind of gone by the wayside. It's kind of, yeah. It's there, it's but not dwindled. there. So it's, that was an important piece because you could apply to be on the peer counselor team, but a lot of us were just selected just based on our years of experience. And um, it, it was all confidential. So that was a huge, huge part of it. Did some of this funding go by the wayside after uh, the, the George Floyd there's incident? There's plenty of funding. Oh, there's plenty of funding? There's okay. plenty of funding. It's just what the city wants to allocate. And have did you see shifts in that specifically mental health realm um, for police officers uh, after the George Floyd incident? Yes, I think there were a lot of people that um, just kind of lived with their PTSD and anxiety or depression or a combination of all of them and just kind of muddled through. There's a big stigma, you know, for people who do have PTSD. I think now it's a little less for sure. It's a lot less than when I started. You might had may have had one or two cops a year, maybe that would leave to the department. Um, saying, yeah, I have PTSD and, and have a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist tell them you cannot do this job anymore. You physically and mentally cannot do this job anymore. And it is, it's a huge, like, oh my gosh, it's like a bomb's dropped on you. Um, and now it's, I mean, there there isn't as much stigma there and there never should be, but now it's a lot more commonplace. And I, I think it's just, the things that you see just become more and more and you pile those up over the years. It's obviously different if you have a couple years on than if you have, say, 20. You know, that list just keeps growing of like traumatic incidents that you try and deal with. And it's, I think for some people, it just becomes harder and harder and closer to home. You know, because you're going to see like you'll equate, oh my gosh, my child is that age and I'm just witnessing this child, the same age, something traumatic happening to them. And then you kind of start putting that into perspective. So that becomes difficult for people too, as they stay on the job. The last couple of years uh, had to have been extra tough considering the climate in Minneapolis and you guys were directly working down during um, downtown during the riots and everything, correct? During that so time, the so the riots were everywhere. They weren't just downtown. yeah. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. So uh, you were working downtown when the riots were downtown. I mean, so I was assigned to the third precinct. So the first, yeah, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about that. But the first day, I was the the third precinct, and then um. 
I was working part-time mounted patrol. And so then that was, you know, that's, that's what we do is crowd control. But that quickly got out of hand very, very quickly in all different parts of the city. You don't have to talk about it all. I guess just from my perspective, it was saddening to see a lack of support of the police force that have been out there protecting us for so long. And then it was just to me a slap in the face to so many of you, you know, um, knowing what you do, risking your life day in and day out. So I don't know if there is any kind of misnomers or anything you wanted to speak to that, but there's clearly been a shift in the last couple of years, just even with police numbers in the Minneapolis area, correct? How, how much has We've it We've lost, I think, over 350 officers in two years. And the majority, I would say, went out on medical, um, PTSD, a lot of retirements that probably maybe went to retired, but said, screw it, I'm done with this. And what, you know, what was tough for me, um, being that we were in canine at the Beck was not in canine at the time, but we cannot use our dogs for crowd control. There's nowhere near it. So we were basically told to stand down and she's out on the front line. So I'm sitting there worried about her and you were on what, 15, 20 hour days, that was you know, exhausting. Uh, basically to come home, get a couple Very hours tiring. of sleep and go right back. And here I'm just working a 10 hour shift because we're not allowed to do anything. So that was, that was probably one of, I would probably say one of the, probably the toughest times in our relationship. And I'm worried about her and she's just trying to keep herself alive, you know? So, and like I said, you start, you start doing that sleep deprivation and you start not taking care of yourself, not, and it snowballed real quick, and we, like I said, it was probably one of the toughest times in our relationship because I would just say something. It was just like, "You don't know," and and I, I, I didn't know because I wasn't. We weren't able to be down there, and believe me, we were trying, and a number of people left our our unit because of that because we weren't allowed to go down and help. And you wanted to. Yep. You know, and it's not like we could, you know, because a lot of us, you know, we were trying to figure out game plans. We're like, hey, let's leave the dogs up here. You know, we'll just jump in a squad together. But then you have the, the flip side. So we couldn't leave the our facility unsecured because of what was happening. So, like I said, they were could have come in and killed the dogs while we were gone. And so we still had that, our area to protect too. But it was just, it was, it was just a, a real difficult time. Like I said, we've, we've lost 350 officers and... It'll be, even if they had a shift in, in the way policing is done today, it would take 15 years to get those numbers back. It was a difficult time. Yeah, I will say that. It was like Groundhog Day. You know, you come home, sleep for a couple hours, go back, you know, or you'd get called in early. We're, I personally was all over the city. Um, and I will say, and you did, you pretty much hit it, like the slap in the face. I mean, the evil that I saw from people was unbelievable. I mean, just it, the things that I saw, you know, obviously I cannot see, um, and you deal with that in a different way, but just the amount of hate towards police officers and not just hate, but the violence. Like I remember the guy I was standing with on a horse, we were trying to save the third precinct and he played me a, a, a body cam video 
and he was like, did you hear that? And I go, yeah. And I go, what, where'd you get that from? It sounds like gunfire. He goes, that was us sitting on the horse. He goes, I thought that was a firework. And he's like, people were shooting at us and you just kind of shrug it off. And I'm like, all right, well, we better get ready and go (laughs) get the horses loaded. But not only just during that time, but afterwards. So after I completed my, my time with the mounted unit, that 10 days or what, I don't even know how much it was. I went back to my precinct, but we didn't have a precinct anymore. And just the displacement and the hate and that going to the calls and trying to help people. And I mean, you know, everybody thinks that, oh, you're this big, tough cop. You got to take it. But, you know, after a while, like feeling all that hate day in and day out for, for what? Because I'm here trying to help somebody, you know, and people constantly trying to hurt you. It's it, yeah, it wears on you and not only you, but yeah, our relationship and my kids were terrified and, you know, we didn't see them for a long time. Well, even, even we had that aspect too, that, um, because, um, a number of personnel files out of the third precinct got taken when they overran the precinct or gave it up and our personal information was out there. So we had to literally pack up everything in our house, take every family photo off the wall, every personal file, and we had to move it over to a neighbor's house. And then we had retired cops sitting in our driveway. I remember that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's one positive out of that is like, we, I mean, we did. I, we had a lot of people that were looking out for you, reached out and that helped us or, you know, I, I still have my prayer card from one of the neighbors, you know, just Garrison support came like over that. in a little police uniform. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and, and cards the, uh, the food. And, and all, yeah, the food and all that stuff. So, you know, there's always a silver lining and something. Um, right. You see, but you see the good, but uh, you're still having to fight the ugly every single day. Yes. And, and the part, the heart, probably one of the hardest things for me was just seeing all my friends not all my friends, but friends that you've known for 20 some years, like they're, they're gone, you know, they left and knowing that they're, some of them got help, but some of them didn't, you know, how much pain they carry around, you know, um, you're talking about friends in the, in the force that like on the department. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't want to leave that way, you know, but they were told you cannot do this job anymore. And this, you don't have a choice. You're done. And that's not a lot of the way that a lot of people wanted to go out, you know. Or a lot of the people that I personally saw, I mean, up on the front lines, trying to save the city, doing everything that we're trying to do. Um, being told you can't. And trying to do the right thing. And now they're being punished. And or they've, they've left because they they don't want to face getting fired or getting charged with the crime. So that I think that was really, really hard for a lot of people because you do, you put so much time and effort and training and education into being a police officer and the dedication that these officers had was unparalleled and then to be treated the way they were treated and then ultimately leave the department is horrendous. So... 
Yeah. And I mean, I think all a lot of departments across the country are feeling it because nobody wants to be a police officer anymore. And I don't blame them. Right. The um, it's a tough it's a tough job. Well, it's such a tough job. It's so taxing. And then the lack of respect that has been shown in the last couple of years is it's so disheartening. And it yeah, I mean, it. I, I want I'm curious to know what the numbers are like of uh, people going into the field right now. It's, I mean, if when I first, when I tried, when I was going through the hiring process, um, you would go and apply, you know, the suburbs, there'd be one position and there'd be 400 applicants for that position. When I applied for Minneapolis, I think there was 1,500 people taken the test to become a police officer. And uh, in my when I came on in 97, they were in a hiring um, frenzy. And I think there was three classes, but my class was like 46 people. So we had put on 100, I think, in, in 1997, over 100 cops in 1997. So like I said, for my class of that they hired a 46, there was 1,500 people that applied. Um, I think they opened the application process last year. And they had, what, 50 people apply for basically any position. I mean, you know, for 30 spots for, you know, so they had 50 applicants for 30 spots. And you just, it's like, so then I said that's going on nationwide, not not just, but it's just there, that that shift. Well, I think the expectation too, I mean, (laughs) you go to some calls and it's like, I'm a cop. I'm I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a social worker. I'll try and help you, but some some people that call us or we get called to, I'm like, um, I don't think this is a police officer call. Uh, but we have a we have a mental health unit that's amazing. There are civilians that come out to different um, calls where that's what people need is help with their mental health. And I mean, I'll. I'll do my best. I mean, I'm going to be there if you're in imminent danger to yourself or others, and I'm going to get you and those people out of that situation. But as far as long-term like that, you know, I, I don't have the answers or I'm not equipped with that much knowledge to help you long-term. So I think just the expectations of what people think we should or shouldn't do sometimes are a little bit unrealistic Um, And that also takes a little toll, too. You know, you want, I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, like I became a cop to help people. Like, I I love to help people and I will. I'll help you as much as I can. Um, I'm there to catch bad guys. Yes. But, you know, ultimately, you want to see a good outcome for the people that you interact with. And a lot of times you don't get that, that end, that end product, like whatever happened to that person. So you got to kind of be like a robot and say, ah, oh, you know, that's not, not for me to worry about. But I, I think that that sways a lot of people from applying to is there's just so many expectations of you that sometimes aren't realistic. And then you're under a microscope 24 seven, like one little mistake you make and it's boom. I'm either going to make a complaint on that officer or you're just drugged through the ringer. Like you cannot make a mistake. And I think that's another factor where people are like, I don't want to be in that position. I don't want to be in a position where 
I thought I was doing the right thing according to my training and experience, and here I am sitting in a prison cell. And that's a reality for some officers. So I think that's a deterrent. And, you know, family life. You know, it isn't. It isn't an ideal career. If you would like a family, you're working nights, weekends, it's stressful. And if you don't have a supportive family structure or a supportive partner or a supportive spouse or children, I mean, you're not going to make it. You're either going to get divorced or you're going to be in a bad mental state or worse, you know, you might commit suicide. So I, and I think that's across the board for different first responders too, not just police officers. So I think that might be a big deterrent. I know my brother works for a department in Illinois and he said they're having a hard time getting people and retaining people. So it is nationwide, mm-hmm. but yep. I mean, exactly. once a lot of us retire, who's going to do know. it? That's scary to think about. And I think, you know, people underestimate, or maybe they don't, but maybe this is one reason why so many people are um, hesitant to go uh, into the force, but that fight or flight and, you know, you can have all the training in the world, but when it comes down to that, that moment where you make a split second decision that, you know, um, that's also a scary place to be too. And, and we're all humans and we're, you know, fallible. So, man, I could just talk to you guys all day. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. We went down, I know you want to hear the cool stories, but we went down the wrong rabbit no, hole. But, that rabbit but that's what, it, that's what, so that's much, what policing is about. That was so much better. And I mean, I, you know, I, when I say cool stories, I'm thinking of like, uh, I don't know, someone calling, is someone who's like had too much pot and they're like freaking out, you know, something like that, something oh, funny. That um, but I get what you mean. And I'm so glad that we went down this path because this is what's so important. And um, I hope that people listening to this, if nothing else, just can have empathy, um, hearing what it's like to be in your shoes. And that's, that's why I do this podcast. This is what I want to bridge the gaps, let people understand what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. And when you have empathy, you know, we can start to break down that divisiveness and maybe have some more people go out for the police force in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Oh, you guys, thank you so much for coming. Uh, yeah, thanks well, for thank having you. us. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry I kept you so long. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'll get my grays okay. out one way or another. Bye, everybody.